0: Psalm 91, and um, what I'd like all of us to do is, if you don't mind, if you can just stand up uh, as we read the psalm, uh, that'd be great, and you can watch on the screen, and if you can read loud as we read together. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress My God in whom I trust, for He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Not the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The most high who is my refuge, no evil will be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. To their hands, on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. He, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of God. Please be seated. <clears throat> psalm 91 is our favorite psalm. not sure if you knew, but uh, it's the second most read psalm after Psalm 23. Uh, it's a deliverance psalm. It's actually a psalm that uh, soldiers, uh, sailors... They, they carry pocket uh, size, wallet size copies of the psalm with them they, when they go on deployment. So it's called the soldier's psalm. It's a psalm that it's a psalm of 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 the writer who has found a God to be a sure shelter. And uh, D.L. Moody, he had this uh, habit of writing T and P on the margins of his Bible. Tested and proved. And this was one of the psalms that he had written, P, Tested and proved. And uh, so as we look at this psalm, uh, what I'd like us to do is to draw out what the truth is from this and apply it to ourselves. If, and, and so based on the lesson that we want to see, I want to divide the psalm into three parts. The first, I want to call it the appropriation. How the psalmist appropriates the truth of the psalm to himself. We see that in verse 1 and verse 2. And then the second part, I want to call it the attestation. Having appropriated the truth, the psalmist is now saying, hey, come, check this out. It's from verse 3 to verse 13. And then you have the affirmation, which is the latter part, from verse 14 to verse 16, as if God himself is affirming the psalmist with seven I wills. Seven I wills, that's that's how the psalm ends. Now, uh, if you look at the superscription on top of the psalm, you will not find an author. Uh, Nor like in Psalm 2, for example, even that doesn't have a superscription, but we read about it in Acts, so we know that was written by David. But Psalm 90, we don't know who the human author is. Some scholars say, uh, based on, you know, Jewish custom. They say it's Moses. Uh, why Moses is because they attribute the psalm to the author of the psalm that's closest known. And so you have Psalm 90, which is the uh, prayer of Moses. Uh, The language, the emotion of Psalm 90 and 91 is about the same. You know, it's a prayer. And so, and a prayer of deliverance and a thanksgiving. So, um, it could be. Uh, The language that uh, we find in verse 14, which says, uh, you know, set his love upon me. That phrase is only found in Deuteronomy. Uh, That could be another reason why... Uh, they would say that this this is written by Moses. And then again, you see, Moses has seen the arrow fly by day, the pestilence that stalks by the night in Egypt. And then also, in the 40 years, I'm not sure if you really calculated this. I took time to understand this. You see, from Exodus 12, we know there are 600,000 footmen who leave leave Egypt. That's between the ages of 20 and 60. Now, if you give them one wife and at least two children, you, you, you're getting up to close to 2.5 million people who've left Egypt, okay? Now, we're not being dogmatic, but I, what do you think about this? They didn't go to the promised land, and because of that, they had to wander around for 40 years. And That's about 14,600 days, if you divide 2.5 million with 14,600, it's about 175 deaths occurring every day. You see, there was this constant reminder of their disobedience, the death that they see. You've gone to sleep and you wake up, you don't know if the person sleeping next to you is dead or alive. Uh, so it could, be, it could be Moses. It could be also David. You see, David has also seen pestilence because of his disobedience in that he numbered the children of Israel when he was told not to. Um, But the phrase secret place is a very tender word that David uses many times. He uses it in Psalm 31, Psalm 32, Psalm 119, Psalm 139. He seemed to have found for himself that secret place. So... It could have been David, but really I'm thankful that that the human author is not mentioned because it could be a psalm that I wrote, it could be a psalm that you would have written, it could be a psalm that we as a community of faith have written because of the deliverance that we have seen from God, because of what we have experienced with God to be, because we have understood that this is a God who we can come in shelter under that shadow and find protection. And so this is something that we can apply to ourselves. And so keeping that in mind, I'm looking at Psalm 91 and saying, what is it that this psalm is going to talk to me? What is it that, what is the essential truth that I can take away? Uh, This psalm is also the psalm that the devil quotes or misquotes. And so it's important that we get the right truth from this. Uh, so, uh, in keeping, keeping that in context, I want us to look at the, the first part of the psalm, which I call the, the appropriation, where the psalmist is appropriating the truth of this to himself, and I want to call that the, the comfort of the psalmist. Verse 1 and 2, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and abides in the shadow of the Almighty, for I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You see, the, uh, the psalmist is opening for us like a, like a gate, a grand gate through which we can enter to see what the psalmist, uh, what, what the psalmist is trying to tell us. It is as if before we can understand uh, what God has done for us, he wants to show us who God is. I'm not, caught, I'm not sure if he caught, but there are four titles there of God. And so it'd be good to spend some time trying to understand what those titles mean for us. You see, we have the Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, and God. So very quickly, we'll look at these four titles and see how those titles uh, apply to us. You see, in the Bible, we know when you have a name, uh, it, it means... Uh, It it shows to us the character of that person. In this case, it gives us the attribute of God. And when God gives us his name, as we read the word, we see that he reveals to us that attribute which uh, to our jagged soul, which to our weary soul, which to our sorrowful soul, which to our happy soul is is the one that ministers so well. You see, and so it's uh, it's good to spend that time and trying to understand what that means. So the first one is most high. The most high is El Elyon. El Elyon, the strongest of the strong, the most high, the sovereign God. El Elyon. El in Hebrew is a masculine for uh, the mighty one. And the Elyon means the highest. So... The Most High God, the Sovereign God, and this term is reminding us that God is the Sovereign One. He's the Sovereign One. He's a, He's a God who controls all that is in heaven and all that is in earth. And and so, as we look at that verse, I want to um, take us to what would be the first reference where we get to hear about El Elyon. And the first reference is about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, where Melchizedek, he, he comes and approaches Abraham. when Abraham has just, uh, you know, come back, returning, winning this battle with the, you know, against the five kings that were taken away. And is he coming? The Melchizedek meets with, uh, with Abraham. And he says there, it says there, the uh, Abraham, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. And then Melchizedek goes on to say, The most high God who delivered his enemies into your hand, as he speaks to Abram. The most high God. And El Elion is also a phrase that is used as God reveals himself in relation to the Gentiles. You read that phrase, that title, in the book of Daniel El Elion, the sovereign one. And um, you see, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was told this, you see, with the prof- prophetic time saying that, you know, don't be boastful. And yet, as he stands on the terrace and as he looks out, he looks out the hanging gardens. Uh, terrace has always been a downfall of many a king. And as he stands there and he sees that, aren't these the things that my hands made? And it says, right then, at that moment, He was driven from the face of man. His body was wet with the dew. His hair grew like the feathers of the eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He was driven away. And then seven years later, uh, that again is the sovereignty of God. You see, when kings, the biggest scare that they have is, will they topple my throne? And for seven years... As he was like in that form, God protected his throne. Seven years later, this is what we read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 35. It says, but at the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven and my sanity returned to me. Uh, It's often it is when we look up at heaven is when our sanity comes back to us. (laughs) Uh, I extol the Most High, I praised and glorified the one who lives forever, for his authority is an everlasting authority, and his kingdom extends from one generation to the next. All the inhabitants of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he wishes with the army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand and says to him, what you have done? That's the new uh, English translation, but it says, what have you done? No one can ask him. He's a sovereign one the El Elyon Another place where the word El Elyon comes is in the book of Job and we know how Job through suffering has come to understand the sovereignty of God and it says there in Job 42 verse 2 I know that you can do all things that no purpose of thine can be thwarted none of your purposes this sovereign one what he wills he can the El Elyon, the God who controls, the God who controls. And so what does that mean to us when you talk about sovereign? Now, you know, we want to know, what does that mean to us? I, I hope you realize and the word sovereign is the word reign. He must reign. He must be the one who's, who's, who reigns over all, including our circumstances, our situations, our sorrows, our wherever we are, including what you're worried about right now that to know that those are not past his control, not past his knowledge, not past the fact that he is the El Elyon. And, and so in recognizing that our God is the El Elyon, we must recognize that there are no accidents. A cowboy had to um, go apply for this. I think it was the Obama care that he had to apply for. And so the... Uh, The agent asked him, have you had any accidents last year? So the cowboy said, no, but a horse kicked me, a snake bit me, and a cow head-butted me. So the agent said, weren't there accidents? And the cowboy says, no, they did that on purpose. (laughs) The cowboy understood there are no accidents. We as Christians must know that there are no accidents. We don't get lucky. Our God is the sovereign God. He is the one who is in control. He is the El Elyon. He is the El Elyon. J.I. Packer says it so well, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will might frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. The confidence that we have and the psalmist is, is saying it is to this God he's inviting us to, the El Elyon, the sovereign God the El Elyon, the the secret place of the El Elyon that we would learn to abide in the secret place. Then also, the next title we see is the Almighty. That's the El Shaddai. Now, Shaddai is the superlative. It is what they call the plural excellent. What that means is the word powerful is more powerful than powerful. There's there's no other word to describe the the immensity of this power that God, the Almighty, the El Shaddai, that He is a God. And then again, the first reference is the time when God speaks to uh, uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. It's about it's about at least 15 years since God has given the covenant. And reaffirms that in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 16, what happens is Abraham is thinking, I'm getting old, Sarah's getting older, and there's no way God is going to keep that promise, and he falls for that lie, and he commits sin with Hagar. And then you come to 17, chapter 17. God is saying, I'm the God of the impossible. I'm the El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty. This is how it reads. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. He's not just the God who's in control, but he's the God who can. The God of the impossible. The, The El Elyon is also the El Shaddai. The El Shaddai. Now, when you, the, you know, try to understand what that word El Shaddai is um, from the context use of the word, because there's so many people have tried to give explanation. I want to just pick those two things. One is, talks about the omnipotence, and the second, it talks about the sufficiency. The omnipotence of a God, he was telling uh, Abram this in Genesis 17. This is Abram. I'm going to give you the strength of my name. I'm the El Shaddai. You will not see the fulfillment of this prophecy, but because I'm the El Shaddai, you can be confident that what I promised you will be fulfilled. He is the El Shaddai, the omnipotent, the all-powerful, the almighty. But he's also the sufficient one. You see, the, the word El Shaddai is used in the book of Job 31 of the 48 times that it's used, it's in the book of Job. And apart from the book of Job and Genesis, it's used in Ruth where Naomi says, El Shaddai has has been harsh on me. In recognizing that, he's saying, the El Shaddai, the sufficient one. Both Job and uh, Naomi are saying this, saying that I understand my God is a sovereign God, that he is in control, but when he does allow me to walk through suffering, I want the world to know that he's the El Shaddai, he's a sufficient one, he's enough, he's more than enough. The Almighty One who is the El Shaddai, who is sufficient, the omnipotent. And then you have Jehovah. And I said to the Lord, I said the word Lord is. Um, The most often, uh, the title that's used most often, more than six thousand eight hundred times. Six thousand eight hundred times, and when you when you when you see that all uppercase L uppercase O R D all uppercase, you know that's reference to Jehovah, Jehovah the most sacred name to the Hebrews. I'm not sure if you knew about this, but the Hebrew Jew would not take the name of Yehovah in their lips. They they had replaced that with Adonai. In fact, uh, the only time that they were, uh, the only time they would ever take that name would be the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur when he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And the Jews who would write the name, and when they come to the name Jehovah, they would get up, change their clothes, take a shower, take a new pen before they would write the name. They treated that with such holiness. It's a good reminder for us when we use words like OMG or my God or, you know, all of those. We probably, you know, we need to be careful. Exodus 20, chapter chapter 20, and verse 7. But Jehovah, Jehovah is the name that he gives to himself when he does, uh, when he reveals things about himself. Thus saith the Lord is often the title, uh, often the way it is written. Thus saith God is only appearing two times, but the most time is thus saith the Lord. When he reveals himself to his people. It's also the covenant name. When Abraham was given the covenant, he says, I'm the Lord. Uh, Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. On that day, Jehovah made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Jehovah, who's the covenant-making God, The El Elyon, who is the God in control. El Shaddai, who is the God who can. And Jehovah, the God who makes and keeps covenants. And he reveals to us another title, Elohim, my God. That's the first title we we read when we start to read God's Word in Genesis. It it says there uh, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, in those 35 verses, there are 35 times this word Elohim comes, indicating to us that He is the Creator. And when you read Genesis, there's no way uh, you'd ask a question, who began the beginning? He is the Creator God. So the question we ask ourselves is why, why do we, you know, why is God saying that he's the creator God and the God in whom I trust? Among the many words, I want to bring you one in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. Isaiah 43 and verse 7. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You get those three three times, it says created, formed, made, that we're made for his glory, created for his glory, that God has a purpose for us. A- and I don't know how many of us have asked this question, you know, um, we've fallen for the lie of the devil, and it says, I'm not, I don't know what you uh, 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 what about, but that I'm not plain enough, I'm not short enough, I'm not fat enough, you know, whatever it's concerning you. You don't like the skin you're in. It says God, the creator God, Elohim, he's saying, I made you for my glory. We can understand that truth that God made you for his glory. It doesn't matter how you look or where you are and how you are or all of those things. If God can get glory that he made so that you would give him glory, I think that's a good place to be to say, Lord, that is what I want to do, to glorify God. So the four titles, you have the El Elyon, who is the God who controls. You have the El Shaddai, who is the God who can. You have Jehovah, who covenants, and you have Elohim, who creates. And it's through that gate that we get to the rest of the psalm and the psalmist, whoever it is. And if it's a psalm that you have written or the psalm that I have written because of our experience, it's a good place to know that it's here that we've asked to come under the shelter, under the shadow, to abide, to be, to rest. And that if he is the El El that he must be the one who is in control. No one else can be. We can't have control zones. We can't have pockets of areas where we still haven't given up to God because he must be the sovereign God. He must be. In our lives, there's no other way. He is the El Elyon. There's no other way. I, I don't know what it is God has been speaking to our hearts about areas and pockets, sake, and you've been justifying it. And you say, that's okay, that's all right, that's a small thing. Lord, I've given you so much, and what about that? Uh, Lord, that's just a little bit. But God is saying, I want to be sovereign. It's, the word sovereign means overall. It's either overall or nothing at all. There's no gray areas when it comes to him. And when you say he is the El Shaddai, we must learn to trust him fully, isn't it? Because if he's a sufficient one, he's the powerful one, uh, the things that we struggle with, the things that we've been praying for, the things that we have said, Lord, so long, we must remember that he's a sufficient one. Our, we Our prayers are so weak sometimes because we have we have fallen for the lie that that God is going to do what He wants to do and I don't really need to pray because what's the use? But the psalmist is telling us the El Elyon is the El Shaddai. And that as you come to Him and pray to Him and you dwell and abide in the secret place, learn to commune with Him. Because that's what it is to be in the secret place, to, to be in that intimacy, in the place of intimacy with the Lord, that we would make it a habit to walk in the cool of the day with Him, to know, as it were, the, heart of, the heartbeat of God, as it were, to be intimate with Him. If we know who our God is, Daniel, the book of Daniel says, the, the, the ones who knew that God did valiantly, There is, I I love how this verse goes, uh, this this hymn goes, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before you near to the heart of God. as you spend time in that secret place, as you abide in the, in the, uh, secret place of the El Elyon, the Most High, and you abide in the shadow of the Almighty, and you say to God that He is my, my, um, my uh, refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. When we make our dwelling as important as our living, we want to live, and yet we have not learned to dwell. But if we have learned the secret of understanding who a who God is to us, the God who controls, the God who can, the God who covenants and the God who creates, then we can face what life throws at us i'm not sure if, you know as i look around i i get a sense that all of us have understood the truth of the gospel that is found on the lord jesus christ but it's a good reminder for us that's a good reminder for us it's a good reminder to to know that this is the only place where we can find shelter nowhere else You see, the word dwell is the word yeshab is the same word as in Psalm 1, verse 1, where he says, sitteth in the seat of the scornful, as in it's become a lifestyle of that sinner in Psalm 1, verse 1. And the psalmist is saying, I will yeshab, I will spend, I will dwell in the secret of the Most High, in the shadow of the Almighty. God will be my refuge and my fortress, God in whom I trust, because since the time of Cain, the vagabond who was running away, since the time even before, since the fall, men have been restless, trying to find a place for themselves where they can find some peace, and the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 11, says, come to me, I will give you rest. The only place that they can find rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only place. And the psalmist is saying, rest as in a dwelling place, an abiding. You can be there. You can sit as it were. I'm not sure if you've done that, but growing up, I've done that so many times. As it rains outside, you sit in the shelter of your house, look out at the rain, sipping tea and scones. I don't know what it is that you might be sipping or eating, but enjoying, not getting impacted by the storm outside. To live the truth of who God is, because then it's not just the uh, uh, the the fear of the evil, but the evil of the fear. frighten of the many things, the images that we make of of how the uh, you know what's going to happen, what's going to happen to my job, what's going to happen to my finances, what's going to abide in the secret place. Be intimate. Find your address to be, and I, I you know, I, I, I guess I was just waxing eloquent. I says my address is going to be one shadow Boulevard, El Elyon. But that would be our address, our postal address. And when we understand the extravagance of this truth, then we get down to see, from verse three to verse thirteen it seems like it's a carte blanche as we take it away. And therefore, in the attestation, in the challenge, to the, challenge that the summer's gives from verse 3 to verse 13, he says, come see who this God is to me. And therefore, I want to explain to you. And so in the context of this promises, it's important that we look at, um, ask some questions. You see, um, when we read this psalm and you go away and he says, why do Christians suffer? If, if this is true, then does that mean that the Christians don't get snared, they don't suffer, they don't get sick, they don't die? And if that was so, then I have to ask myself, what, are those, what about that Pakistani family that were beaten brutally and killed just recently in Pakistan because they were Christians? Was God not the El Shaddai, not the El Yan? What about the so many of us who are seated who are sorrowing in our hearts for the many things that we've been praying for we haven't received or we have lost and we, we, we so desire and the relatives and the friends we're praying for so that they would come to the gospel, gospel truth. Why do we suffer? Why is it that the soldiers, this is a soldier's psalm, why is it that the soldiers who, who take the psalm with them in that wallet sometimes don't return? I, I'm thankful that the devil would use this passage as he tempts our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we know for the truth that the, the, the complete fulfillment of the psalm is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as in Matthew 4, uh, as it's recorded, devil is challenging the, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are. If you are the son of man, and he says, you know, for he'll command his angels concerning you to guard over you, lest your uh, foot strike against a stone. When the devil quotes the scripture, it says, hey, read your Bible. That's what it says. It doesn't feel like a temptation, does it? Who who would be able to say that you know in quoting a scripture is a temptation but that's where the truth lies and for us to understand that that we can take the scripture and con, you know twist it it's like the thread that sticks out from the sweater we, we you know we are told not to pull, but, you know, we attempted to pull. We pull at that sweater, and soon we leave a gaping hole. And when we pull at these verses out of context, uh, you know, it, it is possible. Not that we will leave a gaping hole in the Scripture. It, it will damage you, not the, not, not the Scripture. And often we will, it will be a shipwreck of our lives that happens. You see, what the devil was doing is using those verses as a pretext. And the Lord Jesus Christ takes the devil back to the scripture. And what the scripture says, it is written, you will not tempt God. And the truth of what God is saying is this. The Lord is telling us is this, that, that there is a right way and there's a wrong way of applying the truths or understanding these psalms. It's the way that the devil uses and in. in putting it as a pretext, or in the right way as he matched scripture with scripture. He viewed every life event in the light of the scripture. He knew that his purpose while he walked on this earth was to glorify God. That if God is the El Elyon, he's the sovereign God who controls everything. He is the El Shaddai who can. He is the one who is Jehovah, who covenants, and the one who creates and we are created for His glory, the paramount reason I live, I breathe, I stand, I do anything is so that He can be glorified. It's so that I don't use and consume these verses that God has given me for my own greed to satisfy my own desires, but so that He would be glorified. So we have to ask ourselves often how often we have taken the Word of God and so selfishly lorded it over ourselves. That we will learn to trust God. You see, John Piper wrote it so beautifully. And I want to read, Satan does not always try to ruin faith by saying the Bible isn't true. He often tries to destroy our faith by affirming some passages over others and using it to lead us into disobedience. They say if God's word is a double-edged sword, you cannot use that against the word. God's word doesn't contradict itself. You have to see the word of God in its entirety, and that is. Let me give you some examples as we understand this, because this truth is very important. And one of the things that I want to take you to is in Hebrews chapter eleven. If you will turn to Hebrews chapter eleven, verse thirty-three to thirty-nine. Hebrews chapter 33 sorry, 11 was 33 to 39. Who through faith conquered kingdoms? Enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And now notice the change. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in the dens and the caves of the earth. And all these, all these, though commended through their faith. The ones who escaped and the ones who seemed to be victorious in this life, are commended through their faith. The Lord Jesus Christ, talking about the persecution and and the preservation through persecution, he says to us in Luke chapter 21, verse 16 to 18, let me read that also. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but... Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. In the same breath, persecution is spoken of with the comfort of preservation. This is a God. What does a shepherd psalm say? Psalm 23. A, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say, when I skip through the valley of the shadow of death, hey, that's not the way I'm going. I walk through it. I will fear no evil. And it's good to remember in times of trouble that the will of God will not send us where the promise of God and the presence of God will not keep us. And that's God's promise. So it's not in the absence of trouble. When when, when he says there's a shelter, when he says there's a refuge, when he says there's a fortress, the function of that or the presence of those must justify or must be justified because of the trouble. Why would you need a shelter, a fortress, a refuge if there's no trouble? And so it's in the face of this. And let me give you the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Psalm 91 it says, you know, uh, we, we, we saw that this was the messianic psalm. But when Jesus was tempted, he refused to be coerced to take those verses and apply to himself apart from the sovereign will. He submits himself to the sovereign will of the Father, and he walks through. And we read in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, this is what we see, Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up praise and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He was heard. He prayed that he would be delivered from death and that he was heard because of his reverent submission. And but yet we know he was crucified on the cross, and, and the truth of that must come home to us, saying that oftentimes it may not just be, it's through the physical death that, that our brothers and sisters have often experienced, that God still delivers us, and God is telling us this one thing. The El Elyon is telling us this. The El Shaddai, the, the Elohim, And Jehovah is telling us this. That I will protect. I will take care of you. And yet in my sovereign will, if I were to take you through waters that overwhelm you or the floods that overwhelm you, know that that's not the end of a saint. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when they came out of the fire, the smell of fire was not upon them. And yet before they went and they said, we know a God can, but even if he does not, we will not bow our knee to the idol, to the image. And so in uh, applying this, Christian, I want us to know this, that they understood that their El Elyon, their sovereign God is also their El Shaddai, their Jehovah, their Elohim. And that's the confidence that we have. Uh, I'm going to read what C.H. Spurgeon wrote. It's impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in the mysterious form. Losses riches enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who, in this, uh, who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. What C.S. Spurgeon is saying is this, that what seems like the shortening of days on this earth is only a hastening to his presence. Um, um, Our Daily Bread had this article once, and they they were mentioning in that article about how uh, Christians were miraculously saved uh, from a flight that they were supposed to take, and the flight was um, uh, Flight 191 that t- took off from Chicago, but but as it, uh, before it landed, it crashed, and 254 people died. And uh, the Daily Bread wrote about a person who was supposed to take the flight, but got delayed in New York and couldn't make the flight, and the providence of God was great. And then comes a letter. And the letter came to them, It says, I want to also tell you about a Christian who did not make it, who died in that crash. His name was Edward E. Elliott, a very well-known, respected pastor. He rushed. His flight was delayed, and he rushed in Chicago. His friends were there as they saw him rush to catch this flight. And then he dies on that flight. And then the family members in the memorial said, We knew he was running not to his death, but to his Savior. And that is the God I want to bring you to. The God who is a sovereign God. The God who is in control. The God who is the El Shaddai. The God who can. The God who has covenanted with you to say, I will keep you no matter what. He's a faithful one. His faithfulness shall be my shield and my buckler. Brothers and sisters, Don't fall for the lie. Through your circumstance, God would be honored. But he who said he will, he will, he can. Trust him. Let your confidence be in him. Because when your confidence is in the El Shaddai, when the confidence is in the El Elyon, the sovereign God, when you trust the sovereignty of God, saying that he is a God who controls all things, nothing can shake the faith that you have in him. It doesn't matter what my physical eyes or my physical body is experiencing. The truth of God's word understood well that that's the place I want to abide, find my shelter in that place. Then we will sit loosely on our limited understanding and our unlimited earthly desire, and then we can sing, "O God, be exalted over all the earth." We, our lives, would be lived out in. In worship to him. You see, the latter part of the psalm ends with the confidence of the psalmist because it's as if God himself comes and affirms. You see, there are seven eye wills, and I will read that very quickly. I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, you are but the God in whom I will trust. When we have that trust in the sovereign God, we can go out and face all that God is, all, the, all that this world is going to throw out at us. He is my God. He is our God. He is the El Elyon, the El Shaddai, the Jehovah, and the Elohim. May his name be glorified. Father God, I want to thank you for all that you are. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be lived in a way that you alone are glorified, that you who are enthroned in the heavens of heaven, Lord, would to you we come, O sovereign one, do as you please in our lives, Lord, and Lord, that we would be able to say, even as the Lord taught us, Lord, that your will be done on earth as it's in heaven. And in our lives, Lord, in the lives of this our people here. And that, and as we have read, as we've been told, the world has still to see what God would do with one who is fully and wholly committed to you. The one who have, has come to recognize that their lives must be lived to the glory of God. And to that extent, we pray, Lord, for the many who are suffering, the many who are, we are missing, for our brother, who, Lord, who, uh, who is straying. And, Lord, for all of those, Lord, we pray. Oh, sovereign God, we plead, because if the else should die, you are the God, Lord, who can. And we come to you, Father, in this time of need. And we pray that our hearts would be encouraged to live that life that you have called us to, that you'd be glorified in our midst and in the world. Amen. May it be so in Jesus, our Lord's name.